0: Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Excited to be here to worship with you. Thanks for being here this morning. Those here in the room, those on Zoom, uh, coming together on a beautiful Sunday morning to be together in the presence of the Lord. and um, So before we kind of jump into things, uh, let me just say a couple of quick words of introductions for those that are new uh, here or new at home. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor of Christ City Church. And um, we love to come together on Sunday mornings as a faith family. Um, But this isn't church for us. This is just the people of God coming together into a place to worship God. But we believe the church really is a people who live life together following Jesus. And that's what we strive to do. Um, What we strive to do outside of this time is to be men and women in our works, in our homes, in our neighborhoods who look like Jesus, who try to to be ones who spend time with Jesus and try to do what Jesus did um, in, in our own time and place all by the power of his spirit and uh, by community together, in community together. And so uh, we think that we actually need each other to do that, that we can't actually be Jesus followers by ourselves. And so uh, to be that, we form gospel communities, which is just men and women who are together trying to live this life of faith out in Jesus. And that's what we strive to do. And so if you're not a part of a gospel community or that's something new for you, and I know especially in this kind of weird time of, of still in the middle of a pandemic, um, we're all in this space, or all have masks, gone and so we don't get to know each other as well as maybe we'd like Um, but i think even more so that requires us to step out and be in community in some sort of way share life with those who are trying to follow Jesus maybe even more now than than we've ever before we need that that encouragement so I'd encourage you to do a couple things one uh, if you're at home just email me obviously if you're there on zoom we've had a conversation before uh, at least over email and we'd love to get you connected in the gospel community if you're here in this room and not connected to a gospel community there's these little cards on the back table it's really simple name email address drop it in the little box I'll email you. We're a small faith family. There's not a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance around it. So I'm just going to send you an email with my phone number. Uh, we can meet up for coffee, for dinner, at an outside place, somewhere that uh, that we can stay socially distanced, but that we can actually begin to get to know one another. And I'll also introduce you into some of our gospel communities and where they're at and what they do and how they meet. And would love for you to be a part of that uh, with us. And so, um, again, like. Like Life goes on outside of this room, and we think that's super important. But we think what we do in this room is also important. We think that God has actually created us to come together on a regular basis to set our minds' attentions and hearts' affections upon Jesus. That's really what we desire to do today. More than anything, we desire um, to have a moment where we step out of our normal rhythms and patterns, relationships and roles, and into a context in which God is present, which God is with us in which through scripture and song and communion we set our hearts and minds upon the one who gives us life and the one who brings us together so that's our intention today that's our hope today and everything that we do um, that is our desire so that we can act, again at the end of the day go back into those roles and relationships those ordinary ways of life fully following Jesus in everything And so, knowing that, knowing that's our heart, knowing that's what we long for, knowing that also we come into today with a lot of stuff that's happened this week, a lot of things that are happening in the week to come, uh, let us just ask the Spirit to do what He does, to let us be here with Him. Will you do that with me? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your grace and mercy, Your kindness to us to, Lord, allow us to to be ones who continuously can be in Your presence. Um, Lord, not just in this time, but throughout the week. But Lord, that you have created us in a way that we need, um, Lord, this time uh, to come together with others to remember what we're a part of, um, to remember that we're part of a family, your family, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And so I pray today as we look in your word, as we, um, Lord, read about your son and the words from your son to his church, Father, um, that whatever's going on in our lives might be filtered through the reality of you with us you for us, you speaking to us. And that wherever we might be, whether in this room or in our homes, Father, or Lord, um, that for a few moments, Father, the Lord, at least for a few moments, that we would, your spirit would, uh, would fill us and call us and, and hold and captivate our attentions and affections so that we might be ones who faithfully and fruitfully follow you throughout the week. All this we pray um, Lord, we just um, gratitude in our hearts for your son who died and who lives and who reigns even now. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. To begin our time of worship, uh, we've asked Lily to read for us a psalm, and she'll be on Zoom, so you can listen to it right here. Psalm 34, 1
1: through 9. I bless God every chance I get. My lungs expand with his praise. We live and breathe God. If things aren't going well, hear this and be happy. Join me in spreading the news. Together, let's get the word out. God met us more than halfway. He freed us from our anxious fears. Look at him. Give him your warmest smile. Never hide your feelings from him. When we were desperate, we called out, and God got us out of tight spots. God's angels set up a circle of protection around us while we pray. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. Worship God if you want to be the best. Worship opens doors to all his goodness.
2: you no. To you this morning, our hearts full, our spirits um, ready and and, uh, waiting to receive your goodness to us in the coming week. May this morning uh, be but a beginning um, to a week ahead that is um, full of your presence and your nearness and your goodness and your power, even as we just sang. Lord, may we live into your kingdom, into your glory. with hearts of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: All right, and grab a seat. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can actually open them to the book of Revelation. Um, for those that are new with us this week, uh, we started last week a, um, a kind of a series that's going to take us through the first few chapters of Revelation, the first three chapters specifically, um, letters written to, um, to the church. And so if, if you open to the book of Revelation, this is how it begins. Um, revelation 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus to show God's servants the things that must soon take place. Jesus made known by sending his angel or spirit to Jesus' servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those Hear and keep what is written in it. The time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The revelation is an apocalyptic and unveiling story of the universe and its multi realm reality framed in a pastoral letter. That's what we talked about last week, right? That is magnificent as the revelation is, as amazing as the revelation is, as imaginative as the revelation is. um, It is first and foremost a pastoral letter. um, A letter written by To the church, for the sake of the church's shepherding, care, guidance, and growth. Yes, the author John was a pastor and apostle. That's the one who penned the 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 words, who tells the story. And yes, he is closely connected to the seven named churches in the narrative of cosmic proportion. But while the pastoral shepherding is penned by John the beloved, um, later to be called John the Divine or John the Theologian, it is Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, who addresses his flock directly. And that's the amazing part of Revelation, right? It's Jesus who is speaking to the churches. And that's what we'll begin to look at this week, is the words of Jesus to his churches. We all want to be shepherded by Jesus, right? We all want to be pastored by Jesus. And in Revelation, we have Jesus pastoring his people, Jesus shepherding his people, Jesus speaking directly to those whom he loved, whom he died for, who he rose again and calls his own. While well, we would prefer to go straight from the awesome vision of Christ that we looked at last week in chapter 1 to the glorious raptures of an inside look at the courts of heaven in chapters 5, 4, and 5, and then maybe on to the grand victorious battles against dragon wickedness in Revelation 12 and 14 before the harshness and the, uh, of, 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 of the fall and the ending uh, and the wonder of earth's recreation at the end of Revelation, we simply can't do it. The Revelation won't let us. As much as we would like to think of Revelation as this, again, this cosmic, universal narrative, this story that has dragons and harlots and battles and fighting and good versus evil and evil being overcome by good and swords and all those kind of things. And as, long, as much as we'd love to just jump into that story, the Revelation won't let us. Jesus won't let us. John won't let us. For the church has to be negotiated first. That's what we see in the book of Revelation, chapters 1. 2 and 3, we have to go through chapters 2 and 3 to get to the rest of the story. The church has to be navigated through first. The only way from Christ to heaven in the battles against sin, the defeat of the enemies, and the majesty of recreation is through the church. And not one church, but seven churches, which is pretty pretty amazing right not one church but seven churches which means all the churches we talked a little bit about that last week or mentioned it briefly anyway The seven is a, a particular number that that means wholeness completeness fullness and while these churches are actual churches and there are seven actual churches that jesus speaks to there's a reason that seven are named and it's speaking to these seven he speaks to all of us even those churches that we all have in mind when we think of the church and even and certainly most specifically even to our church to christ city but let's be honest, we are often more interested in the unveiling of beasts and harlots and plagues and world-ending battles and maybe, maybe golden cities than we are in hearing about the church, right? We know the church. We are the church. What more is there to talk about? Unraveling the mysteries of the end times, now that's entertaining, right? I mean, that's, that's why the Revelation is so popular. That's why it's been, there's so many books written on it. Now that's why there's been movies made out of it. Um, that's why, as G.K. Chesterton said, um, though John could imagine um, incredible monsters within his Revelation, I doubt he could imagine the, the monstrous commentaries on his Revelation that have come. Like, like we're really interested in all the, the fantasy, the majesty, the mystery of the rest of Revelation, but not the church. We know the church, and the church is not nearly as intriguing as an apocalyptic narrative. In fact, it might at sometimes be boring, if we're honest. For being a follower of Christ does not automatically make a person a good conversationalist. If you've ever had coffee with me, you know that. Nor a stimulating companion along the pilgrimage of lived faith. We don't always look at church people and instinctually think of exciting people and best friend material. Listen, I'm speaking of myself first and foremost. I'm not saying of any of you in particular but let's just be honest about how we perceive church people. Is our first thought that church people are the coolest people in the world? The people whose lives we want to imitate, the people who who are on trend and on spot and whose life is an exciting life? Is that generally our impression of, of church people? Or even culturally is that the impression of church people? Not to mention then the obvious issue with the church is that the people in the church are sinners. Sinners in the usual way of society, but also sinners in their religion. Committing not just the sins that they bring into the church. We're not any different than them. There is no they, them, and us. There's just us. Not only do we commit the sins and bring into the church the sins outside of the church, but sins develop out of the life of faith itself. The worst sins, argues one pastor, are not even possible to persons who do not live a life of faith. And I, mean, I think Jesus is a testimony of that, right? Who did he talk to most often? Who did he rebuke most often? Who did he engage most often? It wasn't the irreligious, the sinners and the, and the, um, 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 the prostitutes and the ones who had been rejected by society. Those flocked to Jesus. Those hardly had any issues with Jesus. It was the churchmen, the, the people in the church, the Pharisees, the, the religious who Jesus seemed to be the most aggressively engaged with. The church attracts to itself persons who like to live in the atmosphere of the holy but have little interest in being holy themselves. If we're honest, we at times fall into that category, right? In addition, the church might also at times be less than advantageous at getting what culturally we've been conditioned to desire as the best in life. The church, to be a part of the church, it costs time, resources, relationships, and restraints. It can be hard to get ahead when you're constantly being encouraged to give things up. Sometimes the church isn't the way to get ahead in life. Still, as the Revelation reminds us, a believing community is the context for the life of faith. And the life of faith is developed under the image of the Trinity in the context of community. After all, we are the them baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit by others also baptized, as Jesus ends his life on earth telling us, right? The gospel then is never for individuals, but always for people. As John reminds us specifically, as we just read, those people who hear and who keep what is written. That is the church. Even the Revelation isn't written just for you. It's written for us. It's written for a people, for us to hear, for us to keep, for us to live out. What follows the identification of the revealed and revealer Jesus, who is the priest and king, prophet and sage that we looked at last week in, the, in chapter 1, is that Jesus speaking directly, intimately, passionately, and pastorally to seven groups of God's servants. Seven groups of his followers. The fantastic story of the revelation springs from prophetic pastoral counsel. That's what it is. That's what these letters are. They're prophetic pastoral counsel. While the spoken words in chapters 2 and 3 are unique to each faith family, there's a general pattern that we that we see across all seven prophetic utterances that shapes how we are going to approach and how we're going to engage these seven letters. Now, a quick aside, and I think this is just helpful, because um, we call them the seven letters. If you read in your Bibles, most of them say the letter to the church, the letter to the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, at Smyrna, at Laodicea, but the... In the ESV, all of these, these letters start out with the words, the words of him who. So it'll say, to the angel of such and such church, the words of him who, and then it describes Jesus in some sort of way. And this introduction in, in actuality reads closer to, these things say the one. These things say the one. And it's an, actually an Old Testament formula used in the prophets well over a hundred times to introduce a new specific word from Yahweh himself. So again, we talked a little bit about it last week, like John is inundated in Scripture as he, as he speaks and reveals what's being revealed to him, as he thinks about it and writes it down and puts it together. Like in the 400-something verses, there's over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Like it just, it just flows from him. And so in the same way, Like, he's saying these words that he hears from Jesus, he hears them in the same way as he hears them from the Old Testament prophet, from the ones who are speaking the words for Yahweh himself. And this formula demands that the chapters 2 and 3 be seen as a group of prophetic messages. That is, not prophecy in the sense of trying to predict end times. That's not the idea of the prophetic words in our Old Testament. The majority of them are not trying to be predictive. Prophets in the Old Testament were ones who called God's people to right living to right relationship between God and between their neighbor. That's what the prophets did. They called them into relationship, a right relationship with God. And so these are actually prophetic messages and not mere letters. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, it's not just him saying some things in a letter to to, to people who follow him, but these are a prophet, prophetic utterances, him calling his people back into a right relationship with God and with others encouraging them where, they've, they've, they're, where they're doing well and admonishing them where they need to do differently. And what we'll see, contends Robert Mounts, is that the orderliness and the symmetry of the seven letters betrays a purpose that goes beyond an ethical instruction to seven particular churches in the Roman province of Asia. The entire sequence is a literary composition designed to impress upon the church universal the necessity of patient endurance. And that's what the, the book is for. The, the book of Revelation, as John contends in chapter 1, verse 9, is, is that he wants us to be ones who, um, who join in the tribulation, who are partners as siblings, brothers and sisters, partners with God and with one another in the difficulties of life, but also in the kingdom of God that's here and now, that's real. Through the perseverance, the endurance, the patient endurance that is found in Christ Jesus. Between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and, and his return. And so here's the pattern that, that Jesus uses that will help, help us kind of draw out this patient endurance. Help us be ones who patiently endure amidst tribulation and kingdom all at the same time. The pattern begins um, with an acknowledgement of the angel of the geographical assembly of ordinary believers. Here is an acknowledgement of the divine and human unity. Of those in submission to Christ. Those guided by his rule, his words, and actions. The angels and the church. There's There's a humanity and divinity that makes up even this body of believers. Churches are not referred to in terms of their size, their status, their reputation, their purity, or their heroic feats. But rather their location and the spirit that indwells them. This is a relational acknowledgement. The church is never only physical, nor is it only spiritual. But these things come together. And while the angel has the basic biblical function of a messenger to the church, the angels, and especially the revelation, function as more than messengers here. And like in several other places in the New Testament, angels function as authoritative witnesses, overseeing the plan of God as it works out among his people. I mean, let's think about it. Like the, the, To each church, there's the people in a geographic physical location gathered together, but indwelling them, a part of them is this messenger with authoritative overseeing the plan of God as it works out amongst his people. The presence in the passage always adds an eschatological and kind of an end big picture force to the message as a reminder that divine forces are always at work. And don't we need that, right? That should be an encouragement to us, that the church isn't merely what we see right here in this place over Zoom, but the church is larger, bigger, grander. There's a realm of reality that the church operates in that's more than what we see. The presence of the angel stresses that each church is a spiritual entity with a celestial or heavenly life, living figuratively in the right hand of Christ under his guidance and protection. The angels are servants of God carrying out his orders to reform, challenge, and help these churches. It's a pretty incredible thing, right? That the church isn't just us. That we're not just left on our own to figure it out. But there's this human and divine interaction that makes up our reality. And so after every letter, there's this acknowledgement. And like, maybe for, for some of us, maybe that's not a big deal. Like, It's like, oh, of course. Like of course there's a spiritual reality and a physical reality to life. To the Jew, that would have made total sense. They would have absolutely believed that. For for the Greeks that would have heard this, that would have been um, something they believe. But they would have thought that they would have been at odds with one another, not interrelated to one another. Um, And and so, but for us, we might not even think of it like that. And so, it's we can't just pass over it super quickly, but we don't need to dwell on it super long either. But every letter will be reminded that we're that the reality of the church is more than just what we see that there's more to the church than what we see, and there's more happening in the church than what we see. But after this acknowledgement comes an identification through, through Jesus. While the church is referenced geographically, it's identified through its relationship to Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, his per, and that is, his person defines the church. Each church is given this picture of, of Jesus And while every church contends, Eugene Peterson is located in a specific place, all churches exist under the conditions of geography, of politics, and economics. Each church is visible. And at the same time, every church gets its identity from Christ and what Christ does. Churches exist only in derivation from Christ. We exist only because Christ exists. Our origin is not... Like for our faith family, my family and I moving from Seattle and asking people to come follow Jesus with us. That is not our origin. Our origin is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. That's the origin of your life, right? Think about it as an individual. Well, your life of faith didn't originate by your own actions. It originated in the midst of your story, God's intervening in action, calling you into life. The same is true of every church. That We didn't self-create. And no church self-creates. We'll notice that the description of Jesus' person both matches the description of Jesus in chapter 1 and is different for each faith family. No one family wholly provides the picture of Jesus. No singular church depicts wholly the Jesus with whom they relate. Each congregational identity is partial. Each church is defined only by a piece of the vision of Jesus. No single congregation exhibits the wholeness of Christ. It is not possible to look at any one instance of the church and find an entire representation of Jesus, although we certainly can be led to a wholeness as we listen to what the Spirit says to the churches and respond in worship. We won't, as Christ city, be the full representation of Christ. We can, as Christ city, know fully who Christ is and be built up into the fullness of maturity in Christ Jesus. But we won't fully be Jesus to our city but a part of it, right? From the person of Jesus then comes a word of encouragement. He knows each faith family particularly in ways to specifically speak to them, which is pretty incredible. Jesus speaks to his people as one who lives among them. He knows them in their lives and affirms them not, as we'll see, for their contributions to society or meeting their idealized potential, but for their steadfastness, for their faithfulness. Whatever the world might think, and as that oftentimes that we, along with them, whatever we might think the church to be or to do, Jesus affirms the unnoticed, courageous lives of those who are vigilant, those who are brave sufferers, bold witnesses, who are ones growing and developing as apprentices of Jesus. That's what Jesus acknowledged. That's what he encourages his church. But the church, as we know, is not perfect. We're prone to wonder, and perhaps most significantly in the guise of faith. And so, in each, there's not just a word of encouragement, but a word of admonition, admonishment from Jesus is necessary so that our religious motions do not lose their spirit motivations. That our habits of faith don't lose this heart of faith. This is not condemnation, this is care. It's the loving act of a friend to call the ones he loves out of a way of self destruction and into a way of abundance. And we know this because it doesn't end on admonition. Um, There's one other thing in the pattern that we find in each pattern. And what, what I love most about our Lord and Savior and friend is that he does not leave us with a warning but with a promise. And he does so even to those he has a hard time finding anything to affirm. While there's not necessarily a clear encouragement to every church, there's a clear affirmation to every church, there's a clear promise to every church. Each prophetic utterance concludes with what Jesus gives a promise to those who conquer. Jesus assumes that we'll achieve what he has set out for us to accomplish. That he'll actually be the Alpha and Omega, the beginner and the end. That he'll actually be the author and perfecter of our faith. The, the, these promises are not so much rewards, but the destiny which completes life begun in faith. They're not rewards so much. I mean... They're, they're what we get at the end. They're, they're is, this is where God is leading us. This is what Jesus says is ours through him. The motivation of eternal life, a life that is not only the life we experience but continues beyond what we can see, sustains us amid the here and now as we long for more right? Look, as, especially as Americans, we're always striving for the next thing, the next achievement, the next, the next re- experience of life that's full. And Jesus says, all that is yours. This is what the one who conquers gets. Life in the fullness. This is your destiny in faithfulness. This is yours. And this reality helps us to be like John. Again, siblings and partners in the tribulation and the kingdom at the same time. Because that's what we live in. We live in the midst of the tribulation and the kingdom, and so therefore we need patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. So that's the pattern. We'll see this every every time we look at a church. And let me ask ask you this. Let's see if you can see it as we read the letter to the first church. So think about this pattern. Relationship, acknowledge, identity in the person of Jesus, encouragement, admonishments, promise, as we read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Read with me. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you have at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who, also, who I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In ancient times, Ephesus was described as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was on the highway to Rome and the gateway uh, to and from Asia in what is modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was, therefore, an important city economically for all the Eastern Roman Empire. Politically, it was a free city. That is, um, because of its wealth and influence, it was allowed to be self-governing. Though it was a part of the Roman Empire, no Roman troops could garrison there. They had the ability to function freely. And it was a place where essential political and judicial cases were tried. It was a place of importance, a place of prominence. The prosperity of the city was matched by its religiosity and its ancient religiosity. It was a center of worship for Artemis, as the Greeks called her, Diana, the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, if you remember. It's 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, with 120 60-foot columns, 36 of which were gilded with pure gold. It's, a, it's Still, you can see part of it today, and it doesn't do it any justice, but it was a magnificent, magnificent creation. And while the temple was gloriously crafted, Artemis herself was portrayed rather modestly, as a squat, black, mini breasted figure. So ancient that no one knew where it had come from. While Artemis, the, her surroundings, her temple was this beautiful thing, this thing that people created to demonstrate their, their affection for her and her power, she herself was this modest idol. Uh, one that had such deep and historic roots that no one actually knows where originally she came from. And from this ancient root of religion in the city, this deep root of Artemis worship, sprung a city that was a notorious center of superstition. Along the markets in Ephesus, you could find every religious good and service sold to cure every ill and to reverse every misfortune. Because of its deep roots in religiosity and its prosperity, it was a city that could market to people. Market to people what they longed for in their religion and in their faith. Ephesus was prosperous, influential, proudly religious, and spiritual, and culturally a diverse city. And to this description, that is what is also a postal entrance for the correspondence of each of the following six faith families. It's in the rest of Revelations. If you're sending a letter to Smyrna or Laodicea, it went through Ephesus. So Ephesus is named first in part because it's an important city. The people of faith there would have been in a prominent city. They would have been in an influential city. But they are also the first in the line geographically to receive the word. So it's no wonder that Jesus' words start with his brothers and sisters in this place. And what we actually know about our brothers and sisters in Ephesus is quite a bit. Um, um, While on the surface, Ephesus would seem to have been an unpromising soil for the sowing of the seed of Christianity, says one author, yet it was there that Christianity had come um, some of its greatest triumphs. If you remember in Acts 19, Paul nearly turns the city upside down when faith in Jesus started to impact the economics of religion there, where, where people stopped buying idols because of faith in Jesus, where they stopped going and participating in the economics of religion of the city, uh, which was a huge part of the city's economics, all because of Jesus. We know it was the city in which Paul stayed the longest, over two years, on all of his journeys, and the city which called Timothy its first overseer or elder. In Ephesus, we find the fruitful and faithful Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, some of the the four parents of our faith, the ones who modeled for us what it looked like to follow Jesus. They were, beyond Paul, were missionaries in their own rights and church starters in their own rights. It was to the elders of Ephesus who Paul so intimately, vulnerably addresses his farewell remarks before his final imprisonment in Rome. John, the writer of our letter that we're reading today, would later become the leading figure in the faith family of the city. Legend has it that he actually brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, there, and that that in Ephesus, Mary is believed to be buried. The Ephesian community of faith, because of Paul, because of Timothy, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, and John, um, and many others, was a solid community, a respectable community, a faithful community. Though Paul knew there would be sheep in wolf's clothing who would come to try and take advantage of their Christ-likeness. As great as, and as faithful as the, the people were, they were in the midst of a city that was prowling after their faith. This is, he says as much in Acts chapter 20, writing to the Ephesian elders one last time, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his blood. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. And man, were the Ephesians alert. They were certainly alert. Their alertness was both necessary, but it also, as Jesus' words show us, created some issues. And so let's look a little bit closer at the pattern so that we can kind of help see how Jesus encourages this faithful family from all accounts in their life of faith. Now, as we said, each prophetic utterance or letter begins with a vision of the person of Jesus. In the words of the faith family of Ephesus, Jesus is described as he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. This description, again, comes from chapter 1, verses 12 and verse 16. And as we saw in chapter 1, verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Here Jesus is described as having every church in his hand. No spirit of any church exists outside of Jesus' person and purposes. No matter our opinion of that said church, they are under both his authority and his judgment. That's what right hand means. They are under his care, but also his authority and his judgment. And he holds them all. The lamp stands, as Jesus said again in chapter 1, verse 20, are the seven churches themselves. And Jesus is not any one of them, but rather walking among all of them. And notice that there's no head church. That when he describes Jesus as walking among them, it assumes a circular pattern, an orbitary pattern around Jesus at the center. Their light comes from his light. His presence is the one thing that brings them together, and Jesus is the center. They, again, orbit around him. The church orbits around. All churches orbit around Jesus. This image should be both encouraging and challenging for the way we view the church or other churches and even our faith family as well. If Jesus is the center, the one around whom we orbit, whose authority and judgment we are under, and the light of our existence, whom we can only partially reflect... Then what does that mean for the way we judge our church, our church, and other churches? What does that mean about the way we compare and contrast and compete and condemn? Listen, Ephesus was the greatest of the named cities in the seven letters. None of the other cities could hardly compare to the the immensity, the popularity, the influentialness of, of Ephesus. They were a faithful family by all accounts in history. And it would be easy for them and others to hold them as the standard. It'd be easy to hold the church of Ephesus as the standard. When we go through the book of Ephesians, it's the one letter that Paul writes that he's not trying to address a specific wrong, right, a specific issue within the church. Yet Jesus reminds them that he is their standard and the only standard. Ephesus and Christ city are both one of many. Not in contrast or in comparison, but in orbited unity with others who Jesus holds and knows, leads and shines his light through. That's the reality of the best church in our church, right? Having acknowledged their identity as one of the churches whom Jesus gives life and works through, Jesus now encourages the Ephesian believers in their particular life of faith. It says in verse 2, Jesus knows their work, their toil and impatient endurance to do what? To discern and courageously stand against those among whom are evil. That is, who bring um, a way of life outside of the way of Jesus, right? Who draw people out of a life of faith. But then he doesn't just say those who are evil, like those that they live amongst. It Again, in a city that's full of all kinds of ways that are contrary to Jesus. But they test those who call themselves apostles, that is, those who are specifically claimed to be sent messengers from God, but who are indeed false. So they test, they they stand guard against the cultural pools outside of the church and against the false claims within the church. Such discernment is not an easy task. It's no small endeavor to hold fast to a person and words and practices of Jesus amid a city full of other options, right? Right? To hold fast in life among people who have known only or mostly those options. Think about it. Like, it's not just that your city's full of other ways of life. It's most of the people in your church family have only known the other way of life. So you have this pool of you culture around you. You have this pool internally of those within the faith family and the, the necessity of growing into something that's new for many. To hold fast also among people um, who remain, to hold fast and remain faithful to people who um, live amid a culture that sells every religious good and service is known to humanity it has to be a difficult thing, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like a little bit like we're a part of Ephesus in some ways, at least in some ways in our time, that every religious good and service is sold. How do we discern through it? How do we test it? How do we know what is from God and what's not from God? Because again, it's not just those outside of the church, it's those within the church that are selling the goods and services. It would be easy to get tired of doing that, right? To get tired of discerning, to get tired of standing firm, to get tired of being working and toiling with patient endurance and courage. It would be be easy to become lax and to give out of sheer fatigue or in the name of simple convenience. It would be easier to be like the Nicolaitans who thought that there was no need to fight the flow of religious intermingling. Rather, redeem it, they would say. Or at least let grace cover it and take advantage of what the city and the culture offers. There's no need to stand apart, the Nicolaitans would argue. Freedom in Jesus means we can participate fully as long as we keep Jesus as a part of the conversation. We can live this life. The life, however we, we see fit, it doesn't have to be a toil. We don't have to stand firm. There's nothing to stand for or to stand against. It's embrace it in the grace of Jesus and just be, just keep Jesus a part of the conversation. And listen, we'll talk more about these, these Nicolaitans as we go because they tend to find themselves in other cities amongst other churches. But if, what we see in this letter is that apparently Jesus hated such works. Verse six. Such works. The relational and daily results of, their, of such a faith, a faith that intermingles, a faith that says there is no way to be different, to stand up for things, there is nothing to stand for or to stand against. For they were the works of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul so aptly describes the Galatians. The irony of what the Nicolaitans um, um, offered in this freedom of, in faith was actually not Freedom but was entanglement and enslavement into the very thing that Christ has freed us from. They were works born not out of love for Jesus and a love for others. It's not because you love Jesus and you love others, you're free to do all these things. It was a love for self and a base appetites rather than a pain and a hunger and a thirst for right relating to God and for others. They no longer had a desire to a hunger and thirst to relate rightly to God and to others. They, they hungered and thirsted for other things. The Ephesians saw through the shallowness of this, this ethic and held fast to Jesus. They recognized that there's a shallowness in, um, in this kind of false idea of freedom to, to just to not ever have something to stand for or to stand against. And the Ephesians held tight who, to who Jesus really was, what he really taught, the life he really called people to share with him. And for that, they can be an example and encouragement for us to do the same, that we can do the same, right? When we think we have it difficult, imagine being a small group in a large city in which everything in the city and in within your community is trying to pull you away from the very thing that your heart desires, the very thing that you believe gives you life and the fullness of life. And yet they did it. By God's grace and their strength and their faithfulness, they, they did it. But here's the thing. As often as the case, constant battles harden even the softest hearts. Constant battles harden even the softest hearts. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you have at first, verse 4. And at first means two things. The Jesus followers in, in Ephesus had abandoned the love, the tender-hearted passion and compassion that was the first fruit of their faith in Jesus. What we know about the Ephesians is that in the early days of faith, though difficult, they were, they were full of joy and complete with overflowing, uh, an overflowing zeal for Jesus and life with him that budded and bloomed into caring for the poor and being patient and eager to help the weak in faith and physicality and in a compassion for their city, a love for their city, a love for one another, a way of providing for Paul and for Timothy and for the movement of God to, to go and flow out from the city. That's what we know of Ephesus. That was their first in, in, um, encounter with God. Is it was this deep compassion and passion for the love that they had experienced. They hungered to know God intimately, and they were thirsted for, uh, for more of him in the lives of their neighbors and in their friends. Yet a long faith always goes through valleys of shadows and boredom and can result in passion only for causes and not for relationships that are at the heart of faith. Long faith always takes us into the valleys of shadow. It always moves us through boredom. It always can or can always result or can result in passion only for causes and not for relationships. That's what we see happening in Ephesus. And this is the second meaning of first love. The Ephesians had lost their first love. What they were willing to live for was not a relationship with Jesus through which they related to one another in the world, but for right faith. That was their cause. Their cause was right faith, for truth alone, for right doctrine, or whatever you want to call it. They were protectors and not lovers. They were fighters and not lovers. They prayed not for those that made life hard on them, but they prayed against them. To this hardness of heart, Jesus warns them that to abandon the most primary reality of their faith, love, the one thing that will remain when faith becomes sight and hope becomes realized To lose that will mean that they will no longer have the place they think is theirs amongst the churches. What they value in relation to both humanity and God will no longer be theirs. The thing that they're trying to protect will be taken from them. Ironically, right? That to lose the love for the sake of protection is to lose the thing that you're protecting. Instead of giving in to the hardening of heart, though, Jesus says, remember and repent and do. Remember, repent, and do in verse 5. Remember the grace that they had received, how far they had fallen from the heights of their love, how how ecstatic they were early in their faith and in this this relationship with God that, 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 that compelled them passionately and compassionately to live. Remember how far they've come from that how that seems so far away. But also, remember how far they have fallen. How how far they have fallen in in their own sinfulness before Jesus and after Jesus. When when Jesus calls us to remember, he calls us to remember that passion and that zeal, that, that height of our faith. We all have that in our own stories, right? Moments where we felt a passion, a deep love for the Lord. But we also have moments in our faith when we remember our own sinfulness and how much God's love it took to draw us out of our sinfulness, how much he must have loved us to pull us from the depths of our sinfulness. And so we remember both. We remember, and then we turn towards the love that first drew us to Jesus. That empowered us to live in Jesus and change the community through Jesus, as it did in Ephesus. We remember, repent, we rejoice, and let go of the things we cling to to the one and cling now to the one who loves. Who we do those things that we did at first. Those acts of compassion, that loving one another, that being lovers first and protectors second. Perhaps we need this word most earnestly today to rejoice and let go of hate as we cling to the one who loves. After this warning comes the exhortation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to listen and respond, and then the promise. To the one who conquers in verse 7, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Jesus' promise takes us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the place where God and humanity dwelt in harmony. This is, the, this is what Jesus offered us offers us he offers us harmony with God and one another and with the world. The tree of life, the tree from which life came forever, was cut off from humankind after even Adam's rebellion. But the hope of enjoying its fruit again was never lost to the Jewish people. Proverbs 3.18 calls wisdom the tree of life to, who? to those who embrace her. Those that hold her fast are called blessed. Jesus, remember, was depicted as a prophet, priest, king, and sage, the Ancient of Days, in chapter 1. As a sage, he offers us wisdom. And to lay hold of what he gives us is to live forever. In relationship with God and others, in perfect fellowship, that is paradise, right? We want to know how to live well, to live rightly, to live fully with God and with others. We eat of the tree of life. We cling to the tree of life. We hold fast to the wisdom that is Jesus. Such a destiny comes through conquering, through overcoming all in life that takes away life. Life that can be known only in relation to God. Not through conquering an earthly foe by force, but by remaining faithful to Christ Jesus. A victory of obedience that is analogous to the victory of Christ on the cross. A triumph of faith that comes by remembering, repenting, and holding fast to our first love. Who is Jesus? The one who first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son in whom we have life, who knows us, who holds us, who forms us, whom we as a people orient around and have life from. May we hear the words to the church of Ephesus' words to us. May we, as they were, Lord, be ones who discern with perseverance and endurance. And may we, Father, be ones who never lose our first love. But remember, repent, and hold fast to the one who loved us, who died, who rose again, and who now intercedes on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. let see one last time and um again john in the verse 3 of the revelation says blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy and blessed are those you and i who hear and who keep what is written in them uh, for the time is near he will say in verse 7 that he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so more than anything, Revelation is meant to not just be something we contemplate, but something that we let sink into us, let dwell in us, and then produce something out of us. Um, we are meant to, as John would later be told, to eat the scroll, to, to let it be um, sweet to the taste and bitter to the stomach, but to produce a life that's meant to, to be a life of faithful endurance, patient endurance in Jesus and the way we do that is not just listening to a sermon, not just hearing the, the details and the facts, but in two ways. One, um, through meditating on the word ourself. So tomorrow you'll, we'll, we'll post up on our app and in the website a um, Lectio practice to meant to help you engage with the Church of Ephesus, to hear these words so that you too might hear them and that you too might do them and keep them, just as we've talked about them today. But the other way that we're going to do this through this series, and the sermons won't be nearly as long at each one. We won't have an intro of pattern and things like that like last time. But what we're going to do each time is we've asked a person within our faith family um, to have meditated and thought about and asked the Spirit of Jesus to speak to them for us, to encourage us, to admonish us as Christ City Church. And to begin that for us is going to be Ryan. He was going to come up here. You can go ahead and come come up, Ryan. He's going to share with us um, what the Lord's given him this week um, for us.
3: Thanks, Jeremy. As I start, I just want to mention I'm not sure I can get through this without getting choked up. So those of you who know me aren't surprised by that. Um, But I want to encourage you, Christ City Church, um, as I hear the letters to the churches, um, I want to share the encouragement that I hear from the Lord uh, for our church. And I'm deeply encouraged by the desire that I see in you all, in us, to follow Jesus in faith. The love that you have for one another as Christ loves us. And the perseverance that I see in you all in this time where it's been so hard to connect and so hard to get together, we've um, done whatever it, it takes to connect. And I'm reminded in this encouragement that so many things, so many good things have been taken away in this this time of the pandemic. But we persevered in spite of those things. The picture that I get, um, one of the pictures of this is a Thanksgiving dinner that we had at my house. And I'm emotional because it was so sweet. We set up these long tables and sat apart and it was about 60 degrees, it was pretty chilly. And we had this huge spread of, of beautiful food. Um and, and it was a Thanksgiving feast um in the name of Jesus and it was wonderful. But those moments are few and far between as we look back on the past year. Or so that's why this is, is so encouraging for me to see your perseverance. And this is just one small example um, of of many. So For the faith, the love, and the perseverance I see, um, that's been deeply encouraging to me as I hear these letters. In terms of growth, um, I see the influence of the world um, on us. Um, And I see sometimes we fall into the trap of tolerating that influence. Um... The momentum, the pull, like Jeremy mentioned, the pull of the world is very real. We, we feel it, and, and we we um, sometimes are, are tossed around by the waves of the world. And the world says we need results now. We need more. We need to do more. We should be this. We should be that. And therefore, as people who desire Jesus... We're running around all over the place trying to get Jesus to come with us to where we're trying to go. And so we're running around doing other things and we want to add Jesus in. But Christ City Church, we need to stop and realize this is backwards. Cling to the Jesus that we have. And this Jesus is a friend, he's a brother he invites us in and these letters to sit down and have a meal with him. which um for me 10 years ago was the first time i've really heard from jesus personally that's when i realized that he wanted to eat with me ryan just as he wants to eat with each of you in the most personal way a meal face to face And it's not the kind of meal that we're used to what I've found in my experience. Because I confess that meals these days at our house with me and my wife Tina are often us eating as fast as we possibly can so that we can care for our nine-month-old baby and our two-year-old. And so we wolf down the food very fast and we go back to doing dishes, preparing food, changing diapers, whatever. So they're fast. Let's just say that. But the meal that that Jesus is inviting us to is different than that. It's a seven-course feast. It's it's the type of meal that um, I remember fondly. In, In fact, Tina and I just had a date night where we got to do this where you order one course at a time with gaps in between. It's so slow that it takes hours and hours and we just talk and sit and be. And that type of meal is totally different than what the world is telling us meals should be, where we can just go through the drive-thru or eat really fast and get on to the next thing or watch TV or listen to a podcast while we're eating, so on and so forth. So cling to Jesus. Hold tightly to Him and repent of the love That we have for the world we get to choose our pace we get to choose how fast we eat sometimes we forget that sometimes we let the world dictate our pace and we work so hard to try to be with jesus part of what we need to do is to say no to the world and to you who overcome by holding fast to Jesus day by day, He will give us strength to stand up even more against the world. To push back against that pace that gets us so out of whack. And He promises to give us the sweet joy of His presence. Which in the end is all we have. Think about how many things we're taken away this year. Everything can be t- gone in an instant. What we have is Jesus. So cling to Him. If you have your communion elements, please grab those. They're in the... Uh, seats in front of you if you're here, and we're going to read a confession, and there'll be some parts in bold, and please join me in reading those. Father God, we kneel before you in humble adoration as we set our face to the tasks and interests of another week and season as Jesus' church. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone or in our strength alone, but that at all times we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace, and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life run the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, Priest and Friend, Jesus Christ who for our sake was made flesh and tasted all the different challenges of daily living, as well as the end we need no longer fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, Prophets and prophetesses, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear departed friends and family who have shown us your way. We remember them. We bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O Father, that you have called us to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go cheering us in loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation, and encouraging us to act in love and justice. O Lord Jesus Christ, you called the disciples to shine as lights in a dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weaknesses of which we are guilty. We who in this generation represent your church to the world, We as Christ City Church especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray, the feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us live equal and measure the love received, following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed, such as we. Let the strength of your spirit, O oh Jesus, be in Allah, to share the world's suffering and redress its wrong and the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live. Amen.
4: As I sleep, there is a I rise, drawing me toward you, out of my heart the clear eye.
2: final word, this comes from Jude. We'll be reading and closing with this um, throughout this series. It's a way to just kind of enter our coming week, um, grounded in and um, following Jesus together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Be blessed. Love you guys. See you next week, if not sooner. Amen.